Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global Web3 Edition. I'm here today joined by a very special returning guest, Dan Romero of Farcaster. Dan, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. So Dan, by way of introduction to people who may not know, although a bunch of people do, because you just had your fundraising announcement the other week, why don't you describe what is Farcaster and what did you create it for? Farcaster is a sufficiently decentralized social network that guarantees two things. Users can always maintain a direct relationship with their audience. And developers can always permissionlessly build on top of Farcaster. We think of Farcaster as a protocol, so similar to the web, which is built on top of HTTP, and email, which is built on top of SMTP. Farcaster is owned by no individual or company. It's open source. The code is available on GitHub and is built on top of the Ethereum blockchain where any individual can own their Farcaster account and username forever, and no one can can tamper with it. Yeah. So I want to get into to all of that. But even before that, zooming out um, a bit on your background. So you, you didn't have to create Farcaster. You, you had a very success, successful run as an executive at, at Coinbase. Uh, you're, you're a prominent investor. You, you've, 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 you've done very well, and you, you have other interests. What was really the inspiration behind this opportunity, and, and, and why did you need to do it now? I think it's a confluence of things. The, the first is my first love on the internet has always been information. So a big user of RSS. I've been a power user of Twitter for 15 plus years. And so prior to even being interested in cryptocurrency, I've always found that part of tech to be interesting. Uh, I grew up in the era of open APIs with Twitter and, and third-party clients. And I actually built an early Twitter API application in college. And so when I had some time after Coinbase in you know, 2019, 2020, I took a survey of everything else that was going on in tech, did some stuff in AI, looked at some robotics stuff. And ultimately, crypto still had my kind of imagination captured to the point that when I was brainstorming ideas, the kind of interest that I had in, in protocols and, and information mixed with cryptocurrency ultimately got to a place where the idea for Farcaster was originally called RSS Plus. And the question I had was, could you make RSS, which is an open protocol that podcasters still distributed on today, that prior had been outcompeted by centralized social networks, could you, could you make that competitive with the current set of big social networks? And two years later, kind of ended up in what, what is now Farcaster. And it, it, you mentioned it, it got outcompeted. What is structurally different, or what is the structural difference that could allow it to, uh, to instead of being outcompeted, outcompete today? I think it's worth stepping back just from a history standpoint. Uh, there's a great book by Tim Wu called The Master Switch that talks about the history of communication technologies. And it covers telegraph, telephone, radio, television, and finally ends with the internet. And for those who don't know Tim Wu, he's the the academic who coined the term net neutrality. 
And the book is 10, 15 years old at this point. So a bit dated and, and pre the kind of real rise of, of the big social networks that we have today. But the idea is all major communications technologies start out in a very decentralized way. A lot of hobbyists, a lot of entrepreneurs, and over time, naturally become more centralized. And there are a couple of reasons, but but I would to summarize, I would say it's generally because a superior consumer experience and offering is able to be offered if, if you're a big centralized company. And so I think if you look at the history of the internet, the web one era or dot-com era in the 90s, everything was built on open protocols. HTTP, SMTP, RSS, XML, all of these permissionless protocols. If, if you think about Google, Google's business is built on top of a decentralized protocol, the web, and they're a centralized company. And then what happened in the kind of mid 2000s, and especially as, as mobile took off and you had this kind of app store, which in of itself is a centralized uh, gatekeeper, is the, the centralized social networks that we have today, the Facebooks, the Instagrams, the Twitters of the world, they were able to solve a bunch of gaps that the open technologies, which are much lower level primitives, were unable to, to do well. So discovery, identity, uh, the idea of a viral post, right? So retweets and, and likes and, and the algorithmic feeds that I think now dominate today, TikTok being the biz- biggest example of that, uh, that, that offered a better consumer experience, right? So I think that the early open protocol social experiences, RSS readers being a good example, were really geared towards very technical users, a uh, lot, of, lot of features, but not the easiest to onboard and use type of UX. And so I think what we're, we're in now is 15 plus years into the current paradigm. The big social networks are incredibly mature. They are dealing with a whole host of problems now that you have several billion people around the world using them. And I think that's where the opportunity for a decentralized social network is in the sense that uh, one thing you can appreciate from the centralized social networks is that they have done the hard work to onboard billions of people and teach them what social networking is. And I think we're in an opportunity now where you can take the lessons from centralized social media and all of the features that users show a kind of revealed preference for wanting to use and figure out ways to make them into more of a protocol. And I think that with a protocol, you move more towards something like the web or email where you as the end user are going to have choices, right? So today, if you want to use Twitter or Instagram, for the most part, the only way you can use those social networks is is through the official app from that company. And if you would want to use something different, for the most part, it's just not functional. And there are no real large businesses built on top of those those companies. The the value capture goes directly to those companies. Whereas in a protocol-based social networking world, you will have uh, several large companies and then many small companies that can permissionlessly build new apps and services on top of the underlying data set and, and social network in a, in a way that is very similar to email, right? If you think about the large email providers, you have Gmail, Yahoo Mail, Hotmail, and then you can self-host, you can uh, pay a, an enterprise like G Suite or Microsoft Outlook. And the web is, is similar in the sense that, yes, Google is the largest search engine, but there's no one forcing you to use Google. You can use DuckDuckGo. Uh, you could go build your own search engine if you really wanted to. 
and of course you can always use a URL, right? You don't even have to use a search engine. Um, but with social networks today, we, we don't have that paradigm. And so I think moving more towards something like the web and email is what we're really focused on. That, that makes sense. So, so what you're trying to solve for is this idea of, you know, imagine Twitter where I can, tra- you know, transport my audience to another another platform if I don't like, you know, a stance Twitter is taking or something. Or imagine Twitter, but I can build on, on top of Twitter without being worried that Twitter might shut me down like Meerkat was in the back of the, back, in, back in the day. Give us a little bit of the Twitter history. Was there was there a time where they thought themselves that they might be a protocol and 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 try this approach that, that you're trying? And why why didn't that that happen or, or how did that play out? Yeah, so I haven't worked at Twitter and this is all secondhand. But as a user for the last 15 years and talking to people who have worked there, I think that there was a moment in the early days that a lot of the development was going to be happening through third party clients. Um, one historical tidbit that a lot of people don't realize is most of Twitter's core features today that we take for granted were invented by users as conventions inside of the 140 character limit. So at replies were not native originally, hashtags weren't native, retweets and quote tweets, both a convention, people used to just copy someone else's tweet and put RT or QT at the beginning of the tweet. And all of those features are now natively integrated into Twitter. But that shows the power of of the creativity that can happen when you allow third-party ecosystem to develop. And Twitter uh, ended up closing their API down. I think that there was a there's a story that Bill Gross uh, was trying to buy other Twitter clients, and including TweetDeck, where the strategy was is if you owned enough of the, the Twitter clients, then you could potentially change the underlying protocol or, or backend database out um, and compete directly with Twitter. The other thing related to this, this point that's worth reading is Paul Graham wrote an essay. It's one of his shortest essays about Twitter in 2009. And he makes the point that Twitter is one of the only companies that basically has a monopoly on a protocol. Uh, you know, The functionality of Twitter effectively is a protocol, but it just so happened to exist within a company as you know, you're comparing that to email or the web. And that era of the early Twitter open API ecosystem, call it 2006, 2007 through 2014, 2015, uh, I, I think people underrate in terms of how much innovation happened. Uh, pull the refresh is another great example of just a UI UX innovation that is used universally on mobile now that a independent third-party developer for a Twitter client uh, invented to just make it so that you could easily refresh your feed. And so what we're trying to hope with Farcaster is if we can sufficiently grow the network to a large enough number of daily active users, developers are going to permissionlessly innovate on top of this kind of open set of APIs and, and data in the same way that you you had in, in early kind of Twitter. So, so in speaking about Twitter's evolution, you know, Jack um, Dorsey mentioned a couple of years ago or announced his sort of vision for a, for a decentralized Twitter. He talked about, you know, maybe in a post the post-Trump decision or, or some of the free speech challenges they had. He, he talked about the need to have a, a Twitter that no individual can can control. What is your assessment of, of, of his vision or the blue sky vision as it relates to, to, to decentralized social in general in terms of h- how you think about it or the way he sees the world and you see the world o- overlap or, or different? I only know what is public about blue sky. I haven't spoken to Jack or too many of the people working at blue sky. I, I know there's some actually very talented um, distributed 
systems, uh, decentralized social media, people working there. My sense is if, if you just step back, Twitter is a publicly traded company that uh, is in a very high profile potential acquisition with, with Elon Musk right now. And their vast majority of their revenue comes from advertising, which the input to advertising is the amount of time people spend in the app. And I think building Twitter itself as a protocol is an extremely large shift from a business model and architecture standpoint. And I think that without the founder involved with Twitter anymore, you're going to have a very hard time convincing shareholders to make that shift. So for example, Facebook, I wouldn't be surprised if at some point Mark Zuckerberg, if he's still there, is able to make the shift to make Facebook or, or Facebook's set of apps into protocols. That That's a founder level decision and it needs to kind of be willed into existence. I think as it relates to Twitter, they've obviously supported Blue Sky and, and I think Blue Sky is an independent company. So very m- well could develop some interesting new protocols and technologies, but I think it's worth pointing out and I think that they've been public about this, Twitter and Blue Sky are different at this point. So. I'd view Blue Sky more as it's a project that's out there trying to build kind of a set of primitives, protocol, uh, way of creating decentralized social media. But the likelihood that Twitter itself will now adopt whatever is coming out of uh, an external company, I think is pretty low, especially given the potential Elon acquisition and the amount of debt and focus on near-term monetization that they'll probably have to be worrying about. Totally. So... Looking into the future in the next decade or so, how do you expect you know decentralized social and what you're doing with Farcaster to to overlap with uh, with centralized services like Facebook and, and, and Twitter? To be clear, centralized social media is not going away anytime soon. It offers a terrific user experience for billions of people around the world. Um, I think one thing that the very online folks on on Twitter that you and I both follow. They love to talk about how evil Facebook or, or any of these large centralized social media companies. And I think that if you were to ask the average American, they're quite happy with it. Uh, maybe, maybe not the most recent uh, shift in the Instagram UI towards reels. But what, what's interesting even there is uh, that's, that's a kind of stated versus revealed preference. If you go back to the beginning of Facebook, anytime they launched a new change to the newsfeed, users absolutely hated it. They claimed it was an invasion of privacy. They wanted to go back to the old Facebook, boycott Facebook. And the reality is that people continue to use the app, right? So it's kind of this stated versus revealed preference. People just don't like change. And so I would imagine the Instagram change to their client is supported by data. And the reality is, yes, there might be some vocal people who are against it. But the revealed preference is people like watching short videos in an endless stream. And obviously that's working well for TikTok. And and so I wouldn't be surprised if it ends up working well for Instagram. But stepping back, I I think those types of social media applications are going to exist for a very, very long time. And I think one way to think about it is a lot of it is entertainment. So functionally, it doesn't matter if there's some new enabling technology. uh, It's already serving a purpose. And there's actually a lot more competition between Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube with traditional television or you know movies or Netflix than the average person might think. I think as it relates to some of the other types of social networking, like Twitter, 
that probably looks a little different because if you think about what Twitter is as a social network, it is the most public of all the major social networks, right? When you sign up for Twitter, your profile is public, your posts are public, who you follow is public. The follow model is unidirectional. I can follow you. You don't have to follow me back compared to, you know, when you make a friend on Facebook, that's a, that's a bi-directional model. And I think that Twitter itself, going back to that Paul Graham point, that it is kind of like a protocol is not too far off from something like RSS, where if you can actually add some of the, the, the gaps that RSS was never able to solve, discoverability, uh, the ability to kind of have uh, client diversity with algorithms and feeds and, and a certain level of UX, then I actually think you can bootstrap a, a competing protocol a lot faster. I think the other thing about it is it's not that expensive from a hosting and bandwidth standpoint, right? Text is easy. Compare that to something like YouTube, which to run a decentralized YouTube competitor, you're going to have to find people to, to host and, and serve the videos. And so I think that those probably happen later. But in terms of the 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 one that I'm most convinced, and that's kind of where we're starting with Farcaster, is the public broadcast of text in a kind of follow-based model with a feed app. That that some type of that form factor is is going to be where people will naturally move to a more protocol or or decentralized approach. And I think it goes back to the two reasons. The first is if you're a large creator, is not even the right term. If you have a large audience, right? You don't want to be at the whim of some product manager or trust and safety person in San Francisco that they can just turn your account on Twitter off. And then what might've taken you 10 years to build up in terms of a following, that distribution is gone. So I think one frame that people don't appreciate most of the time is they are effectively renting their audience from Twitter and they have no strong guarantee that if they do something that Twitter doesn't like, that they they can't exit with their audience. Compare that to something like Substack, right? I could have a newsletter. I could have 100,000 subscribers on Substack. Substack decides for whatever reason, they don't want me to be using Substack as a publishing platform, which to Substack's credit, I think they've been incredibly supportive of a, a wide variety of different viewpoints on, on their platform. They take pride in that. But put that to the side for a second. Email itself is a protocol. And I can take my 100,000 subscriber list and move that over to MailChimp or a self-hosted service and continue sending my email newsletter. There is no way to do that with Twitter, right? So if, if I have whatever audience I have on Twitter and someone at Twitter decides that I no longer have that audience, I can't have my followers, okay, I've moved to a new, new social network. You're, you're basically going to get a very, very small fraction of those followers who move over. And so in a decentralized system or protocol-based system, I think that as you get larger in terms of audience, that becomes a big risk for you. And I think today it's on the fringe, so it, it tends to be uh, politically oriented issues. And, and so it, it's kind of this, oh, well, that's fine. And I, you know, I don't like that person anyways. We, we don't need to have uh, you know, them on Twitter. But the reality is you, you, know, you could be doing... I don't know, gadget reviews. And somehow Apple sends you a cease and desist to Twitter and Twitter then decides, okay, yeah, this is these are trade secrets. That's against our terms of service. Okay, now now the, the product review guy on Twitter with his large audience has been removed from Twitter and there's no recourse to be back on there. 
And so I, I think, look, there are going to be a ton of people who say, oh, that doesn't matter. But the reality is that people will vote with their feet. And I think the second component, which is in the near term, what I think will actually drive more users to these, these networks, it's the idea that developers can permissionlessly innovate. And if you look at Farcaster today, we have several thousand people in a, in a small beta. The number of apps and GitHub repos and, and kind of experiments that people can play around with in a completely permissionless way. So they never have to ping me or anyone working on Farcaster for an API key. They just can go to the, the docs on GitHub, index all the content, and then do what they want with it. Very similar to the web. I think that will be the driver of some interesting new experiences that if I could tell you what they are, I would have already invented them. And so I think that that's also one other thing I hear a lot of Web3 criticism where they expect the people who are on a podcast to be inventing the use cases on the fly. And that's not their job. The, the job of use cases is for people actually writing code, entrepreneurs. Uh, the, the aggregate amount of creativity is the thing to focus on, not the, the specific VC who might have five or six potential ideas. But you, know, you could have said five years ago that TikTok, something like TikTok is never going to be successful. And you would have been right for five years, and then all of a sudden you would have been wrong. And so I, th I think that that is the thing that it's very hard to measure something that doesn't exist yet, but is enabled by the fact that there is permissionless innovation. And so you either believe that or you don't, and, and you can say that that's wrong. But if you have a system that's completely open and anyone with an idea, a computer and an internet connection can actually go attempt that, I, I'll, I'll bet on that group of people over a 10-year period than any of the critics who, who keep saying, oh, there are no use cases, there are no use cases, there are no use cases. And then when it happens, they'll try to uh, do some intellectual gymnastics to, to explain why that use case ended up working, but there are no other use cases. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let, let's let's um, go a bit deeper on that in terms of giving people an image of, 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 of what they can see, of, of what some of this third-party ecosystem looks like? I know, you know, Farcaster is still very early on, but what are some exciting things you're already seeing or, or hope, to be, uh, hope, hope to be seeing soon? What, what, what can you uh, imagine that people are building on top of Farcaster? The first basic example here is we don't have native search in our clients. It's a problem that requires a lot of effort and we felt that it hasn't been a priority for us in terms of what we're, we're trying to focus on. That said, there have been a ton of people in Farcaster that wanted search and a developer went and built Searchcaster, which allows you to search any cast on the entire network. And he's been incredibly responsive to feedback. So people on Farcaster are saying, oh, I wish this existed. And uh, if it even was for us, we'd kind of have to put it on our roadmap and, and think about priorities, whereas now this one individual developer can just say, sure, and just you know makes that change overnight. I, I, I think... Imagine if Twitter had, I don't know, 15 different competing search engines on top of it, and they had true full access to the firehose. I think one people appreciate is that Twitter's API is somewhat limited. I know they're trying to make some changes there, but um, for example, likes only go back to a couple thousand. So if you have 15,000 likes, there's no way to programmatically go back and look at you know like number 12,000 in, in history. And again, people would say, oh, that doesn't really matter. But from a developer standpoint, that information is really, really valuable. Whereas with something like Farcaster, all, all that is going to be available in a completely permissionless way. I think the other area, and again, I hesitate to be like, oh, well, this is the use case that I think should exist. I, I mean, I have my own ideas, but 
the the things that are most interesting to me are the the things that look toy like and silly to the average commentator, but they're they're fundamentally doing something new, and it's some new behavior. And so I, I tend to find the things that are doing um, stuff with Farcaster and games to be interesting because it, by definition they are toys, and so they're easy to dismiss. But a lot of stuff that happens in games ends up and in, into both culture and and in uh, technology. So I, I think that, that that's an interesting one. I think of this this concept of a universal like button. So early era of the web when Facebook was less oriented on mobile, there was the the famous like button that you could see on every page. And Facebook still has the the kind of vestige of this effort in in the term open graph, which if you Google open graph, it's a protocol that Facebook first developed so that information would flow back into Facebook. They changed their terms of service and their strategy at some point. And so developers stopped pushing information into Facebook at, at a large scale. And so today, Open Graph is this kind of weird thing that actually is more useful on Twitter in terms of showing you a preview image for a link. But the original concept behind that was every action you could take on any of these kind of public social networks or apps, you could seamlessly move that information into Facebook and you could have a social experience around it. And so I, I think with Farcaster, that becomes incredibly easy. So the idea that you could take, whether it's a URL or a podcast, and actually just see universally all of the people who've either liked that podcast or commented on that podcast. And so you can kind of create this universal like button, but also maybe a universal commenting system that you could maybe embed in your blog, right? So Discus is a, a centralized company that's done this for a while. But now you could just say for any item on the internet, whether it's a URL, an NFT, a, a podcast, you could take that and then search on Farcaster, all mentions of it, and then actually permissionlessly bring the the social content uh, into some type of UI. And you know, some people say that that's dumb. I think for a lot of people, that sounds kind of interesting because they didn't have to get an API key and, and they can experiment and build whatever new experience that they want to try. It's really fascinating. The... Um... A decade after social media, you know, or Twitter at least, some people look back and at something like the Arab Spring and say that was kind of a, uh, you know, an inflection point where people realized how, you know, fundamentally important this this thing is. It's not just people talking about breakfast, etc. If we had to make a you know comparison, like you know, a decade out or a few years out, when people would look at decentralized social and say, wow, this is uh, you know an inflection point in um, you know relative to decentralized. Do you think it's going to be something? related to speech or something related to, you know, third party things that something builds or, or what, what could be, you know, an hour spring like moment for, for decentralized social or forecaster specifically. As an aside, I would say the Arab spring is a little bit overblown. And I think that <laughs> uh, the writing 10 years later about it kind of has shown that every one of those situations, they didn't actually change materially any, anything. And in most cases there were regressions in a lot of those countries. And so I think people love looking for narratives like that. But the reality is, you know, it, it might generate a nice media story at the time, but, but systematic change in, in anything takes a long time. And I would say that for better, for worse, social media in the U.S. really came to the forefront, I think, in the call it last five years, given just a bunch of stuff that's happened in the broader world, both on the political side and then obviously the pandemic. But I, if I was to guess on, on it, decentralized social media, it's, it's going to be a lot more like Linux. And there's this famous quip that people say, oh, this is the year that desktop Linux was going to beat Windows. And that never happened. But if you zoom out and you look at Linux or, or Unix broadly, 
is vastly more popular today than Windows ever was because all major mobile phones are running on some version of Unix or Linux, right? So iOS is built on top of a Unix core and, and Android is built on top of Linux. And so I think about it, again, going back to this idea that it's an enabling technology for developers. If you can slowly grow and make incremental progress over the next few years in decentralized social, and this is not just Farcaster, but the, the broader space, by having these new enabling technologies and primitives, you have creative people who can come up with completely new experiences. And I can guarantee you that most people would have said Snapchat's a stupid idea after Instagram and Facebook had already existed. And it would never be a big company and or you know be popular, but obviously that's not the case. And so same thing with TikTok. And so I think that it's really easy to dismiss new things that haven't happened yet with this kind of hindsight bias. But for me, I just think of it as, okay, if I'm a marginal, young, uh, kind of excited developer, and I want to hack on something over a weekend, does the kind of decentralized protocol-based social network like Farcaster, is that the natural place that I want to do the experimentation? Or am I you know, excited to use like centralized APIs from Twilio to make some, I don't know, SaaS tool? Probably both, but I would, I would say that Today, we really don't have much experimentation on top of the Twitter API because, A, the historical precedent of them kind of doing the rug pull, but also I, I think that the API has not really been much of a focus for them. And again, I, I think they're having a big conference this this fall, so maybe they are trying to turn the ship around there. But but my sense is that the open protocols and open ecosystems, they start off really s- slow, but as they accelerate into the kind of S-curve, then they become this kind of runaway train that look obvious in in hindsight, but for the kind of first part, everyone just makes fun of and says, this is never going to be actually competitive with the the much more polished, centralized corporate version of of whatever it's competing against. That that, that makes sense. Farcaster is is perhaps the the, the most famous, but but there are other experiments have taken place and are taking place in decentralized social more broadly. And I know you've been studying them. What do you think we've uh, learned about um, the experiments that have taken place thus far, you don't, you don't have to name any specific ones, but just in terms of certain behaviors or certain lessons that you, you feel you've learned that maybe you've uh, you've said, hey, we should incorporate this or not incorporate this into, into Farcaster. The biggest lesson I've taken away after spending two years building is the Eugene Way essay, Status as a Service, is correct. It You, you have a new social network. The existing people on the previous social networks already have status, already have large audiences. They don't have very much incentive to switch. So the people who inevitably end up using new social networks tend to be people who have lower lower status. And this is not the, the greatest term, but the idea that they have a smaller audience or they have less to lose to try out on the, the new thing. And I think going into building Farcaster, I have a bunch of what I call internet friends who have large audiences who care deeply about the idea of having a decentralized protocol-based social network, but those people are not very active on Farcaster. And I think in retrospect, that that maybe should have been a little bit more obvious to me. Maybe it was uh, kind of overweighting my relationship as, as a way to convince those people. But the reality is those people have 100,000 plus, you know, million plus followers on Twitter and, and they've already built that audience and it took them a decade plus to do that. But the thing I would say for the space broadly is... One thing I, I've noticed is there hasn't been a ton of focus on 
clients and really, really polished UX. And I think that that's something that we've done with Farcaster and we, we're doubling down on because the, the protocol to me, or not to me, but, but my belief is the protocol is only good at, as good as how many people are using it. And people are only going to use something that meets a certain level of experience. It, this is not 2007. So you need an actual polished mobile app that performs within the kind of realm of, of something like a, like a Twitter or a Facebook. And so I, I think that that's one area that maybe the wrong lesson from some of the DeFi protocols that have worked out really well is the idea that you can kind of write a white paper and then this field of dreams mentality where if you build it, they will come. But the hard work to get someone to install an app on their home screen and use it at least once a day to, to then go build on top of someone else's protocol, I, I just don't think it works. And so I think this idea that you have to build both the, the initial client and the protocol at the same time, you're dogfooding the protocol. You, you know where the kind of APIs that you need to actually be building into the protocol that enable the experience that you want to offer to an end user. I think that that is an approach that I'm hoping more people take in regardless of whatever they're trying to build in crypto or Web3. But I, I think part of that is also I, I worked at Coinbase, right? So 90 plus million people have onboarded with a significant amount of onboarding friction with, you know, know your customer, you have to use your ID in the onboarding. But having learned, okay, how do you actually do that effectively? I think there's a version of, of that that people lose sometimes with crypto because so much of it can just, you, you can scale the number of dollars in a, in a DeFi protocol a lot easier than you can scale the total number of users. And so from our standpoint, having, you know, Varun and I have both been at Coinbase, we are really, really focused on that initial onboarding and then and kind of like that first first run experience in the same way that a traditional web two social network would be, right? Like Facebook is notorious for being relentlessly focused on how simple is the onboarding and how fast can you get to 10 friends? Because if you got to 10 friends, that's the quote magic moment. And then the user would be hooked. And and I think I'm not trying to hook anyone on Farcaster. I view it much more on the, you know, are we already providing utility for people in, in that in that they want to voluntarily open up the app because they find the content and the experience rewarding. And that that I think is is the area that we're, we're really focused on. That, that makes a lot of sense. More broadly, you, you've been working on Farcaster for for over a year. Why don't you talk about uh, kind of how you navigated the the idea maze with what Farcaster would look like, or perhaps some of the biggest design design decisions or design trade-offs that, that you made in, in building it? I'm a big believer in first principles thinking, not the person that came up with that. Obviously, Elon loves talking about that, Bology. I, I think when I sat down to kind of answer that initial question of how could you improve RSS enough that it could be competitive with something like Twitter, I, I think some of the ideas that I was kind of approaching this with were, you know, okay, making sure things are rooted in in foundational product principles that I believe. And one of those is I, I just don't think an average user is going to want to spend money to take an action on a social network. And so from that standpoint, we really wanted to design the, the architecture of the protocol to be as minimally on-chain as possible. And so just to kind of restate that a different way, we only use the Ethereum blockchain for Farcaster to sign up the user. So the username, and that maps to a public key, which is an Ethereum address. And then the rest of the architecture 
uses the magic of just public-private key cryptography to kind of make sure everything works, both from a kind of authenticity standpoint, but also from a developer experience standpoint. And I think that that is a maybe controversial decision. You know, I've been in crypto longer than most, but I had a lot of people for the first year tell me, oh, this should, everything should be on, on chain. You should just use, you know, an L2 because it's cheaper. It, you know, you're, you're, you're not thinking through this the right way. But I, I think we've stuck to our guns in this and, and you know, we're making progress. But I, I think overall, we feel pretty happy with the decision to use the blockchain for the things the blockchain is good for and then try not to, to stick as much on, on chain as possible. And I think that that is also tied into this other concept, which I think we talked about a little bit before, but we had a very strong point of view is we had to build the initial clients. And so I would say that the, the amount of work we've been working on Farcaster, 85 to 90% of the effort has been on our clients. And, and that I think is the, the, the client, the app is the experience. And the protocol is only as good as the people using it. In order to get those people to start actually using the protocol, you you need to have that polished experience. And I think from there, I've had a lot of people who, you know, they, they have some experience on the on the product side of things, or or they've been around for a while. They've criticized kind of how we've approached it because they said, "Hey, this is too skeuomorphic. Uh, it looks too much like Twitter. This is a Twitter clone." And the thing I would push back on and Two years later, like I, I have some data at least in terms of what works, what doesn't. There were a bunch of early design decisions. We, we tried to actually actively not have it look as much like Twitter. And naturally, the people who are using it were like, hey, could you just nudge this a little bit more like how Twitter does it? And I think the perspective that I've developed is there are table stakes set of features that if you're trying to build a new social network, especially one that is kind of this public broadcast-based social network, you, you just need to have, right? You need to have a follow model. You need to have the ability to have threads and replies and likes and and some version of a, a retweet. We call them recasts. But but those things, and if you actually look back at the history, Twitter didn't invent retweets, right? So it originally started on Tumblr and then users started to do it in the text box. And then ultimately Twitter turned it into a product and a, and a very good product at that. But I, but I think that sometimes people are not appreciating that so much of, of where we are in social media today is, is a you know, it's just iterations and remixing other ideas and concepts, right? There are a bunch of concepts from a, a failed social network friend feed that I think about a lot when I'm thinking about Farcaster and this idea that you can kind of bring in other sources of information to a single feed. And maybe in 2022, with kind of the the hindsight of the last 10 years of what's worked, what's not, maybe maybe some of those elements from friend feed, it's the right time to, to try them out again. And, I, you know, the classic example here is like Webvan, grocery delivery, dot-com era company didn't work. And then Instacart has obviously worked really well. And why is that? Well, mobile phones have actually enabled a bunch of things. And just the general TAM of the internet is so much larger. And so I'd say the same thing is if you if you view the TAM of social media now as billions of people around the world, maybe some of those concepts uh, from the early days of social media, you know, the tumblers, the front feeds, the things that never kind of hit the escape velocity, Maybe it's it's worth revisiting them and seeing if you can actually integrate them into kind of a modern experience. And and so I think that that that's kind of the third thing that I've learned in terms of first principles is most of these ideas are borrowed and remixed. And so figure out the ideas that might be worth trying again and and see see if you can kind of make it work. And that makes sense. I want to talk about your idea of sufficiently decentralized 
because it's been a broader you know, question in the space. If you look at something like Ethereum, like some people will say, hey, is Ethereum caught in this sort of you know, uncanny value where it's not as decentralized as Bitcoin in order to be store value, but it's it's you know not optimizing for experience the way that like a Solana or or something else that is you know willing to make more sacrifices on the decentralization sort of vector um, in order to increase you know either usability or scalability or experience or or, or what have you. Uh, I'm, I'm curious how you think about Ethereum in, in in that situation, but more more broadly of just like what is the right trade off between decentralization and, and some other vector. I think there are two questions there, and I'm happy to address uh, each. So ETH versus other blockchains. My framework that I use is the Teal framework of 10% versus 10x. And if you take Bitcoin, Bitcoin's first. Bitcoin is competing against no other cryptocurrency effectively. So you, it, it, by definition, is a 10x. It, it invented the category. I mean, technically, if you, you're starting from zero, you can't 10x something. But you, you get my point. And look, it's still the biggest today. It's the best brand. It's 2x the market cap of ETH. Like, I, I don't think you need to spend too much time on Bitcoin in the sense that it is very good at what it's trying to do. But I think that it has stagnated from a developing new parts of the technology. And there are valid arguments to say, hey, we want to be more conservative. Like the, the goal here is to replace money. Fine. Personally, that's less interesting to me. I, I think it's foundational to the space. But I think where I get excited and what ETH is a 10x is ETH is a 10x on Bitcoin in terms of programmability and as a developer platform. And the thing that ETH has relative to all of the other competing chains that have come out since is ETH was first effectively as this kind of smart contract computing platform. And then every other blockchain is now competing on a maybe it's 10% better or 30% better or on, on some axis. But if, if you, for example, only want to focus on transactions per second, of course, there are a whole bunch of other blockchains that are way better at doing that. But I think that the revealed preference from developers is that transactions per second is actually not the thing that is holding them back, right? And, and I have a good friend, you know, Kyle Samani, who's an investor in, in Farcaster. He, he is much more in the kind of the way to get to a billion people using crypto is, is have blockchains that are much more scalable. And my, my point of view, and, and this is kind of proven out in the reveal preference of how I am building Farcaster, uh, we just don't use the chain that much, right? So I actually think you can get very, very far with the right architecture and then use the blockchain for what it's good at. And in our case, storing the username to public key mapping for every user is something that Ethereum is is excellent at, and even with high gas costs, uh, the you know the fees that you need to pay to use Ethereum, we think that that can scale for a, a very long time. And so that's where I think the argument around like oh where is ETH versus X chain is flawed, in that ETH ETH ha- already has a, a a a huge lead in terms of developer community, in terms of just the all of the things that you need in terms of an ecosystem. And if you only want to focus on one or two other features that something else is better, then I think that's the wrong way to think about it. And and not to say that there are not other opportunities for other blockchains. Like there are very smart people out there and, and maybe they can come up with something that is fundamentally offering a different experience. I think uh, some of the stuff that we've seen in the last couple of days here with the privacy of Ethereum transactions shows some of the flaws in in this kind of default public blockchain approach. And so I wouldn't be surprised if in the next few years, the some new 
blockchain, or maybe it's Ethereum or, or Bitcoin that they make some improvements there where a more private uh, by default blockchain that is not designed for, for illicit activity, but as much as just is, it's a computing platform that has more privacy. So the, the analogy that a lot of people in the space use, which I think is decent, I don't think we've quite figured out which blockchain would do this, but the analogy is HTTP versus HTTPS. And for those who don't know at home, every website you go to that has a little lock in the browser, that's an HTTPS website that just means secure. And basically every modern website uses secure transmission of data versus plain text HTTP. And that's not controversial today, but if you actually go back to the mid nineties, Netscape wasn't able to ship a browser with uh, strong encryption outside of the US because encryption at that point was regulated as a effectively a munition. It was, there was kind of like arms export regulations associated with it. And so Netscape was not competitive globally for a period of time because their version of whether it was SSL or RSA or whatever encryption scheme that they wanted to have built into the browsers outside the US had to be a low enough encryption bitrate so that the NSA could crack it. And eventually they were able to get a law and you know the technology industry was able to get a law passed during the Clinton administration that said, okay, fine, encryption is is no longer regulated like a munition. And obviously now we have all these experiences that are end-to-end -end encrypted. So I, I think if if you kind of take that frame today, I think the idea of like truly private blockchains sounds scary. You could come up with a whole bunch of potential horror stories for, you know, oh, this is going to be used by bad people. But two things. One, bad people use the existing financial system at, at orders of magnitude larger scale. And we, we haven't decided to ban that. And then the second thing is, I, I think if you take it through the lens of privacy, which by the way, in the United States, we have a constitutional right to privacy. I think having the kind of core technologies that power the apps and experiences that we use have privacy built in is, I think, an important um, thing for society. Totally. Going back to Farcaster, right now it's still early in Farcaster, you know, and I'm a I'm a I'm a user, and I you know it reminds me of early Clubhouse and that it's this amazing community and lots of good content. Um, and you know, some people say this about early Twitter too, where it was just tech people kind of talking to each other before it became this sort of, uh, you know, much more combative or, you know, a space where people couldn't be as open. How do you think about sort of the scaling challenges of a, of a social network um, that, that, you know, that Twitter certainly faced, that, that Clubhouse faced? How do you think about that as it relates to Forecaster? The frame I use is orders of magnitude. So today we're about a thousand people using the app, give or take, and each order of magnitude from there, I think probably presents new new challenges. And the current approach, it's it's invite only right now. The the protocol itself is open, but we're the only ones who've built the client. So what what is invite only is is our client. So you can kind of use the analogy that when Gmail first came out, Gmail was invite only in its beta, and people were actually selling invites to Gmail on eBay. I actually bought one. Uh, you know, my first Gmail invite when I was you know, middle school or high school, I was I was buying it on eBay. I don't think anyone's doing that for Farcaster yet because they they have to DM me to get access to the client. So I think uh, we're not quite there. But um, the way to think about it, though, is for the next order of magnitude, I think we can continue scaling with the strategy. We're just, you know, put a little basic screen on on who's coming in. Uh, pretty open to anyone. But, you know, if it kind of the account is spammy or they have two followers and they signed up uh, yesterday on Twitter, probably is, is a, a low quality account versus someone who you know has been using Twitter for five plus years, 
And, you know, that to me, is that's more or less the, the qualification to bring them in. I think the next order of magnitude is where you start to lose that nice small feel. So 10,000 to 100,000. And I think we have some ideas on, on the product side of things for the clients that can help keep that small feel while scaling the total number of people on the network. And I think where you start to really run into some of the more common issues with social networking is that 100,000 to a million or a million to 10 million. And then beyond, it just gets more magnified. Uh, I think a couple of things structurally that are different about Farcaster compared to traditional social media that I think we are going to not have to deal with early on is, so one, the default experience today is there is no algorithm. So it's, it's strictly who you follow. And if you don't like what someone's saying, you just, you can unfollow them. And you know, you, that in of itself gets, I think you pretty far. Whereas if your default experience is algorithmic and your business model is much more time spent advertising engagement, then if you let the algorithm drive revenue, then ultimately it's going to show you the things that keep you in the app longest and might get you more engaged, which that could be more outrage oriented content. And I think for us, we plan to have subscriptions for our clients. And I think subscriptions are a much better aligned incentive with early users because we don't have to worry about, okay, are we getting users to use the app more? What we really need to worry about is, are users getting value out of the app every time they're using it? And I think if you're an advertising-based business, you have to just continue to increase the amount of time spent. That's that's literally the metric Facebook talks about at their, their quarterly earnings. Whereas if you're a subscriber-based business, think something like Netflix, you, you talk much more about it's like what value or, or Amazon Prime is another good example are you providing your users? And so I think that that is the kind of strategy that we're going to take is in terms of monetization at the client level. And in doing so, I think that there's also some level of quality, right? If you're, if you're kind of like a troll or a spam account, the idea that you would even pay to use a client is probably low. And so you can kind of cut out a lot of the, the, the issues that you run into with some of these other social networks where it's trivial to create uh, free new accounts and, and kind of use those for whatever harassment or uh, I know bots are kind of the topic du jour at Twitter these days, but that, that, that kind of stuff. That's nothing good insight. Maybe gearing towards closing here, this would be interesting to people potentially interested in joining Forecaster, but also founders thinking about how to how to build companies. Um, my, my sense is you have pretty um, you have some interesting takes on on how you're building Forecaster in that you have a you have a strong engineering culture, um, but my sense is that the team is going to be you know re- relatively small by by design uh, relative to how other big companies operate, and then also that you have a strong kind of you know upside alignment uh, culture, and that you've been pretty pretty generous um, in, in in giving equity. Why don't you? either unpack those or, or just talk about how you think about building Farcaster, the, the sort of organization um, and how it's maybe different from, from others. So Varun and I had been at Coinbase and we were both pretty early there and watched the company get up to roughly a thousand people. There's a lot of stuff that breaks. Every kind of doubling of the, the headcount, everything kind of breaks and you have to re- redo it on the kind of people management side of things. And for I think for both of us, it was our first real management experience. I think there's a lot of stuff that I didn't like about that in terms of you spend a lot of time in meetings and you're not spending a lot of time thinking about problems for the users or customers or getting to work on interesting new technology stuff. It's just the nature of a growing business. And, and you know, that, that that's one thing. I think another input is 
I've always admired the scale that Instagram and WhatsApp, ironically, both sold to Facebook. But I think Instagram was on the order of about 13 employees with about 27 million users. And WhatsApp was something like 50 people, roughly 450 million users. And a good example in crypto today is FTX is uh, 200 people and roughly is the size of Coinbase. Um, I think Coinbase is around 5,000 people today. And so I think that one thing that uh, Silicon Valley culture that kind of correlates growth of company with headcount size, um, that that's worth revisiting from first principles. And uh, kind of Varun and I have both thought that, hey, we're in 2022. If Instagram got to 27 million users with 13 people and call it 2012, technology has gotten a lot better. Like you can get really far with, with some of the stuff that AWS has and just, you know, develop productivity generally that we can actually, hopefully if, if we build something that people actually want to use, achieve a lot of scale with, with a few number of employees. And I think that that solves two things for us. So one, going back to this idea of as you scale, there's just a lot more complexity from a people standpoint. And so having a smaller team, I think you just get to work on more interesting problems because you're not spending as much time on people problems. And I think that the second thing is going back to this idea of how we plan to build a business. I think we can have a subscription-based business that is profitable relatively quickly when, when we decide to do actually work on that. And that will enable us to be in control of our own destiny, right? Uh, Paul Graham talks about the idea of like default dead or default alive. And if you keep your headcount lean and focus on hiring experienced people who can have a lot of autonomy and ownership of the business, you can, I think, get to that default alive state a lot faster. And I think the last point you mentioned, and this is correlated, obviously, with having fewer people, is we've just been more generous with equity. And our strategy there was, one, we bootstrapped the business uh, for the first year and a half ourselves. So we didn't have any dilution uh, in terms of like a seed, uh, pre-seed or you know or early round. And then so when we did go raise this recent venture round, we just had a lot more equity available to go give our early employees. And, and so I think what we found is giving larger equity grants to people is very aligned with this idea that, hey, this is probably not going to happen overnight. And if this does work out, they're going to have a lot of upside in the business. And so I, I think that that's something Varun and I feel strongly about and, and have at least in practice for the first few employees have, have given out, I think, pretty sizable equity grants relative to what I would say market is. Totally. I, I, and, and, and you've got a really, uh, a really great team. I, I think this is a, a great place to, to wrap uh, for, for people listening in who uh, want to potentially join Forecaster. Can you uh, let people know where to where, where to go um, or want to apply? And uh, feel free to also mention any other upcoming plugs of, of what to stay tuned for. Yeah, so they can DM me on Twitter, uh, DWR on Twitter. Send me your Ethereum name service, your ENS, and your email and a DM. We'll take a look. And if you kind of have some on-chain activity and your Twitter account doesn't look like it was a bot created yesterday, I'll probably send you an invite. Awesome. And I, I will confirm it's a highly curated, very uh, interesting uh, group of people and, and there's some great conversations. Dan, thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast. This is a great uh, masterclass on, on decentralized social and uh, look forward to having you back when uh, Farcaster is at that next order of magnitude. Thanks for having me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.